Good morning, everyone. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I am so thankful for the opportunity to come and to visit Pajera and to see uh, the Brannons and to see this church, which our church regularly prays for. Uh, and so we are um, very, very happy to uh, be able to have brought a team of folks from Mount Vernon to, to get to meet you and uh, we hope uh, get to, to love on you and uh, encourage you in the faith uh, this morning and as we're here throughout the week. Uh, so as I begin this morning, I, I want to pray and then um, we're going to jump into God's word. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the gift that it is to us, your people. We thank you that you are a speaking God and that you speak to us through your word. We pray now as we come to 2 Samuel 6 that you would speak to us from this passage and that you would teach us what you would have us learn and that your spirit would be at work among us, opening our eyes and hearts and minds to the truths that this word contains. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start this morning with a question. If you had the opportunity to be the king or queen for a day, and you could do whatever you wanted to do, what would you do? What would be the, the first thing that you would do? And, and I want you to think seriously here for a minute. So no making your birthday a national holiday and making everyone bring you presents. Um, kids, no banishing your brother or your sister to the dungeon. Um, but really, what would you, what would you do? Uh, I think it's a really profound question to wrestle with. How would you use the power that you had been given? I think your answer will tell you a lot about yourself, about your priorities, about the desires of your heart. Most of us are never going to get to be king or queen for a day. It's not going to happen. But David got to be king over Israel for 33 years. And in our passage this morning, we find out the first thing that David did when he was king. And it tells us a lot about his priorities for the nation, about his desires of the heart. But more than that, it teaches us some important things about both God and ourselves. And so let's open up our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me just set the stage for a moment. As most of you will know, David was Israel's greatest king. As I said just a few moments ago, he reigned over Israel for 33 years and the story of his reign begins in 2 Samuel chapter 5. There we're told very clearly in what is a kind of a summary picture of David's entire reign as king that David's success was due to just one thing and only one thing. It was the fact that God was with him. David was a great king because he served a great God, a gracious God. And David knew that very well. And so after securing a capital city in Jerusalem, the first thing that David did as king was to seek to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. 
And that's what gets recounted for us in 2 Samuel. So let's look there at the passage. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us this morning. David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel. 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baalai Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named the place Outburst Against Uzzah, as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he delivered it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up. And had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David... Saul's daughter, Michael, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it up in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. Then David, when David had finished the offerings, the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. Then all the people went home. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. How the king of Israel has honored himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. David replied to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will dance before the Lord, and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter Michael had no child to the day of her death. Well, this is a, a strange and even an uncomfortable story to read. It, and yet, it contains some very important lessons for us as Christians. 
But because it is so strange, before we get to those lessons, I first want to walk through the story and unpack it a little bit. And then we'll circle back and and see exactly what we can take away from the passage. So let's walk through the passage. In order to understand it, we have to understand what the Ark of God was. Because it stands at the center of the entire passage. And in short, the ark was a giant gold-plated box. A little bit larger probably than this podium that I'm speaking from. And that box had a lid on top of it that Jesse spoke of a moment ago. It's called the mercy seat. It was completely made of gold, and on it sat two cherubim, two angelic beings, and they, they faced each other with their heads bowed towards the center of the ark. Inside the ark were three things that were important artifacts from the, the history of Israel, specifically from the Exodus. There were two tablets of stone on which Moses wrote the Ten Commandments. There was a golden urn containing containing some of the manna, the bread from heaven, with which God fed the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. And there was the staff of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the priest of God. So each artifact was symbolic in its own way, speaking of the, the law of God, the authority of God, the provision of God, and also of the priesthood of Aaron and the the ability that those priests had to stand as the mediator between God and man. So a very symbolic box. But what made the ark truly special wasn't its appearance. It wasn't its contents. The thing that made the ark special was that it was the place where God met with his people. The author of 2 Samuel reminds us of this when he describes the ark in verse 2. He says, the ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. The ark was the earthly footstool of God's heavenly throne. It was the place where he had chosen to come down and to meet with his people. It was a visible symbol of his presence with Israel. How did the Israelites know that the invisible God was with them? It was because they had the ark and he had promised to make himself known there, to be present there among them. David knew that. David knew it very well. And it was for that reason that he wanted to bring the ark into Jerusalem. His desire for the ark was a desire to be near the presence of God. David knew that the Lord was with him, but he wanted to know the presence of God in a far greater way. That's why he sought to bring the ark into Jerusalem, and he made every effort to do so. If you look there in verse 1, we're told that David took 30,000 men with him to go recover the ark. Now, many of you will know what a motorcade is. If a a ruler or a leader from a country goes to visit another country, or even if they travel within their own country, often they go surrounded by cars and guards, sometimes even the army. Well, when you think about this picture, what you have is a motorcade, but it may be the largest one that there ever was. 30,000 
men went with David to go to this place called Bale Judah, which was only about 10 miles from Jerusalem. So 30,000 soldiers to go 10 miles to recover the ark and to bring it back. You can see the importance of the ark to David. David was determined to take that ark from Bale Judah to Jerusalem. It had to get there. And so he made every effort to, to make sure that it happened. And so the ark began its trip to Jerusalem. And as it did, we're told something that is, is interesting. And, and we'll understand it in a moment. But we're told in verse 3 that the ark was on a new cart. That may not seem like a very big deal to you, right? It makes sense not to put something valuable like that on an old cart, right? We would, we would think it was strange if it said the ark was placed on an old beat-up cart that was falling apart, right? That's not what you do with something that precious, right? When you think about something that precious, you think you want to handle it with as much care as possible. But there's a problem. And the problem is that the ark was never supposed to be carried on a cart at all. Back in Exodus, when God gave Moses the instructions for making the ark, he made it very clear that the ark was always to be carried. There were rings set in the side of it. So you can think of kind of a ring and a ring and a ring and a ring. And there were poles that went through those rings and the priests were to carry the ark with their hands. And this makes a lot of sense. I mean, you think about your most precious belongings. We tend not to, to just give those things to other people and say, hey, can you get this from here to there? I'm going to throw it in a box and, and I'm going to hope it makes it. You know, you think about a precious dish or a bowl or a vase. Instead, what do we do? We, we tend to carry those things ourselves. We tend to, even if we do give them to someone else, we wrap them up, we make sure that they're safe. We mark the box, you know, it says, handle with care. Keep this safe. And that's how we, we transport those things that are so precious. Well, the ark was to be precious to Israel, and it was to be transported in a very specific way. And yet that's not how they transported the ark in this moment. And because of that, we're, we're, we're waiting in one sense to, to find out what's going to happen because we know that this is not the way that this is supposed to be. And it doesn't take long for that to happen. So we're waiting for something bad, but initially we're told that everything went well. They got the ark. It was a joyous occasion. There was music. There was dancing. It was a party. A big parade for 10 miles as they were walking back. There were people celebrating. There were people singing. And then the ark came to a place called the threshing floor of Nacon. And when it did, the oxen that were pulling the cart stumbled. The cart started to shake. And Uzzah, the priest who was standing behind the ark, did the unthinkable. He reached out his hand and he touched the ark. Now, again, you and I would think that's not that big of a deal. It was going to fall. And yet, what does God do when Uzzah touches the ark? Well, we're told there in verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. And God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died next to the ark. 
everything stopped. And Uzzah lay dead right next to the ark. Everything came to a halt. No one knew how to respond. And we're told in verse 8 how David initially responded. In verse 8, we're told that David's reaction was anger. In David's mind, his first thought was, Lord, how could you do this? All we were trying to do was to bring the ark to Jerusalem. But if you look at verse 9, you're going to notice that David's anger quickly turned to fear. David feared the Lord that day, and because of that, David sent the ark away. In that moment, David was reminded of something that he had, in some small way it seems, forgotten. And that was the holiness of God. God is holy. Though he he condescends, he comes down to dwell among us, we can never forget the fact that he is not like us. He is perfect. He is sinless. He is pure. He is holy. And we are not. And that means that we don't get to enter into God's presence on our own terms. If we're able to be in God's presence at all, it's because he's allowed us to come on his terms, not our terms. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the Lord had given very clear instructions about how to carry the ark. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read to you a few verses from Numbers chapter 4, starting in verse 15, where the Lord explained to Moses how they should carry the ark. So Numbers chapter 4, verses 15 through 20. Listen to how the ark was supposed to be carried. It says, Aaron and his sons are to finish covering the holy objects and all their equipment whenever the camp is to move on. So anytime the ark was to be moved, they were to cover everything. Then the Kohathites will come and carry them. But they are not to touch the holy objects or they will die. These are the transportation duties of the Kohathites regarding the tent of meeting. Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has oversight of the lamp of oil, the fragrant incense, the daily grain offering, and the anointing oil. He has oversight of the entire tabernacle and everything in it, the holy objects and their utensils. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Do not allow the Kohathite tribal clans to be wiped out from the Levites. Do this for them so that they may live and not die when they come near the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons are to go in and assign each man his task and transportation duty. The Kohathites are not to go in and look at the holy objects as they are covered, or they will die. From that passage, we learn one thing very clearly. The ark was holy. It was a symbol of God's holy presence. To touch it was to die. To look upon it was to die. And as David stood there looking at Uzzah, laying dead on the ground before him, the fact that God is holy hit home in the most profound of ways. David desired the presence of God, but now 
he also feared that presence. His desire turned into dread. And you can see that in the question he asks there in verse 9 of 2 Samuel 6. He says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How can a sinful man like me live in the presence of a holy God? That was essentially David's question. If this ark, which is merely the symbol of God's presence, can't even be touched, how on earth can anyone dwell anywhere near the presence of God and still live? David wrestled with that question, and as he wrestled, he stopped the parade, and he decided to send the ark away. So that's the first part of our story, and and that in and of itself is shocking. It's a, a shocking story that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? The thought that, that someone seeking to do something that we would think is, is apparently a good thing, that the ark was going to fall, and Uzzah touched it to steady it. We think that that's a good thing, and yet it ended in his death. And I think the intention of this story is to make us uncomfortable, uncomfortable to, to make us wrestle with that reality, and more than anything, to make us wrestle with the reality of God's holiness. It's intended to instill a a holy fear in us, a fear like David experienced. If you're you're someone here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're someone who's here this morning and you think, I'm not quite sure if I am a Christian, I want to let you know that this question that David asks there in verse 9, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? The heart of that question is the most important thing that any human being can ask. How is it that I, a sinful human being, could ever dwell in the presence of a holy God, a God who is perfectly pure, perfectly righteous, perfectly just? Right? If the God who killed Uzzah is the God that dwells in heaven, what hope do I have? That when I die, God is going to let me into his presence. We think that David was actually reflecting on this moment in his life as he wrote another portion of the Bible, Psalm 24. And in that psalm, in verses 3 and 4, he says this. He says, who may ascend to the mountain place of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. Clean hands, a pure heart, that is the only way that we can dwell in God's presence. That's our only hope of heaven. But the Bible is clear, none of us have clean hands, none of us have pure hearts. Every single one of us is a sinner. We don't deserve to enter into God's presence. We actually deserve God's wrath, his judgment for our sin. We deserve to die. But amazingly, the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for us to enter into his presence. The answer to that question, how can sinful human beings like you and me enter into the presence of a holy God is found in the gospel. It's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
God is holy. We cannot forget that fact. But we also must remember that God is gracious, that he is kind, that he is loving. And in his kindness and his love, he sent his one and only son into the world to, to live the life that you and I could never live. Jesus actually had clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus never lifted up his soul to what is false. He never swore deceitfully. And even though he did nothing deserving of death, he willingly died. He died the death that you and I deserve to die so that sinners like you and I could actually enter into the presence of God without the dread of death. Friend, if, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you may be listening to me talk and wonder, do I actually desire God's presence? And I want to tell you, I think the answer, and, and I think you know the answer, is yes. You, you live life recognizing that there's something missing, that there's something not quite right. You, you live at times in fear, a fear of your own sin, a fear of your own guilt. And what that is telling you is that, that there's something missing, that there's something wrong, that you need God's help, that you need his presence. And so I want to encourage you today to seek God's presence. And the way that you do that is by turning to him in faith, repenting of your sins, turning away from your sins, saying to God, God, I don't want to be someone who is sinful, who cannot enter into your presence. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness and mercy. And then it calls you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Say, I believe that Jesus is the one who can cleanse my hands and purify my heart and make a way for me to dwell in your presence. And so if, if you're someone here who would say, I'm not a Christian, this morning, I want to encourage you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ, to put your faith in him so that you might be able to dwell in the presence of a holy God. I pray that you would learn the lesson of Uzzah this morning and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, there's something here for us as well. It is, is good to remember as shocking as this story is, it reminds us so clearly of what we deserve apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from him, we deserve death. And that reality should lead us to just marvel afresh at the mercy and the grace, the forgiveness, the righteousness, the life that we have received through Jesus. The access that we have into the presence of God. Jesus has given us clean hands and a pure heart that we might dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. We want to praise him for that. All right, so back to the story for a moment. David sends the ark away. He sends it to the house of Obed-Edom. And the ark stays there for three full months. And in that period of time, God pours out his blessings upon the household of Obed-Edom, this man who received the ark. And the news of that makes its way to David. And in verse 12, we're told that it's reported to him that the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom, that, that God had, had showered his blessings upon this man who sought to shelter the ark for a season. And so David, desirous of those blessings, sins again for the ark to bring it to Jerusalem. 
But this time he's determined to actually do it on God's terms. So look at verse 13. In verse 13, we're told that this time the ark was not on a cart. The ark was carried the way that it was supposed to be carried. And as it was carried, you'll notice something interesting happens. We're told that after they took six steps, they stopped and David offered a sacrifice. Now, why the sacrifice and and why after just six steps? Well, David had learned the lesson of Uzzah. He understood that we don't enter into God's presence on our own terms, but on his. And the Lord had made it clear in the Old Testament that the means of entering into his presence was through the shedding of blood, through a sacrifice. A death needed to occur for David and for the people of Israel to enter into God's presence without dying. And so David offered a sacrifice. But why after six steps? Seems odd, right? One, two, three, four, five, six. Stop. We're going to offer a sacrifice. Well, the answer is that for the Israelites, the number seven was the number of completion. And so the priest took six steps and the sacrifice was the seventh step. It was the thing that completed the journey of the ark. It was the thing that allowed them into the presence of God. An offering had to be made, and without that offering, the journey was impossible. And again, this points us to Jesus Christ, to his sacrifice that brings us into God's presence. A death has to occur for us to enter into the presence of God. It's the death of Jesus Christ. Apart from that death, we have no hope of dwelling in God's presence. With that offering made, the ark was taken forward, and the, the parade began again. Right? The one that had ended so tragically now was struck up again. David is in the lead. He is dancing before the Lord, we're told in verse 14, with all his might. The people were cheering. Trumpets were being blown. Everyone was rejoicing as the ark came into Jerusalem. All except for one person. David's wife, Michael. When she heard all the noise outside, when she saw the parade, she goes out, she looks, she sees her husband dancing before the Lord with all his might. And the author tells us there in verse 16, if you look there, that she despised him in her heart. David, though, was completely unaware of Michael's disdain for him, and he just continued dancing. The ark was put in its place in a tent, and just as David had done on the journey as it began, he offered more sacrifices to the Lord. Praising God, again acknowledging that blood needed to be shed for the Israelites to be and to remain in God's presence. In his joy, he sought to bless all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He gave them bread and cakes. His joy of being in the presence of God overflowed into generosity. Isn't that the fruit of the gospel in all of our lives? As, as we remember what God has given us, we, we flow out in generosity to others, give because we've been given to. And so David gives, and then when he finally gets home, he wants to bless his family as well. But instead of being able to bless his family, his wife gave him an earful. In verse 20, we're told, she says, How the king of Israel has honored himself today. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. Now, we're not clear that David actually exposed himself. But what is abundantly clear is that Michael was 
deeply concerned for the way that David was viewed by his people. When she saw her husband, she saw a king acting like a fool in front of his subjects. She cared more about what David looked like in the eyes of the people than how David looked in the eyes of God. But David, on the other hand, cared far more about how he looked in the eyes of the Lord. He trusted that if he honored the Lord, he would be honored by God's people. Now, it's important to know who Michael was. She's the daughter of Saul. We're told that three different times in this passage. The author wants us to remember that over and over and over again. She is Saul's daughter. She is Saul's daughter. She is Saul's daughter. Why is that important? Well, Saul, her father, lost the kingdom of Israel because he cared more about what the people thought than what the Lord had commanded. Saul was far more concerned about the perception of others than he was about the Lord's commands. And Michael was a lot like her father. And parents, I think this is just a good reminder to us that we have a significant influence on our children. Though it's not always the case, and and praise God for that reality, often our kids end up valuing the things that we value. They're watching our lives. They're listening to our words. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're a parent here, to labor by God's grace to set a godly example for your children. Labor to care more about what God thinks of you than what the world thinks of you. So this story that's been an emotional roller coaster ends on a a terribly down note there in verse 23. We're told Saul's daughter Michael had no children to the day of her death. Now it's not clear whether the Lord actually closed her womb or David essentially put her away as his wife. But we're told that she was childless for the rest of her life. I think the author intends us here to see this as a consequence of her sin against the Lord and against her husband. But we we need to be really, really careful here. Lest we think that the inability to have children is necessarily connected to someone's sin. Or even primarily connected to someone's sin. The Bible actually never says that. Scripture tells us that... For example, Elizabeth in the New Testament, the mother of John the Baptist, that she and her husband were both righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth couldn't conceive. So something to to make sure that we think about, um, especially if you're someone who has struggled or is struggling with infertility, is just this reality that childlessness it's an opportunity absolutely to search your heart there's always opportunities to search your heart but more than that it's an opportunity to seek the lord to remember the gospel to trust and to rest in the goodness of god and to actually grow closer to him Uh, we don't want anyone to think just because they're unable to have children it's because they're a terrible sinner we're all terrible sinners we all deserve god's judgment it may just be that in god's wisdom and in his good plan for your life, he's chosen not to give you children in this time. And so, good to be reminded of that. All right, so this is a strange chapter of the Bible. We've walked through it. We've, we've seen exactly what's going on. We've learned a little bit in the process. But I want to close the time that we have now with, with three lessons, three takeaways from this story that, that we, we cannot help but walk away with. Okay, so, so three lessons. Lesson number one. God's people desire God's presence. God's people desire God's presence. 
This story is ultimately the story of David's desire to be in the presence of the Lord. And that desire wasn't politically motivated. It was, it was personal. It was David who wrote in Psalm 27, verse 4, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. David desired the presence of the Lord. And even after David sinned later on in his reign in the matter of, of Bathsheba, David, it's interesting, wasn't concerned at that moment with losing his kingdom. What he was concerned with was losing the presence of the Lord. In Psalm 51, when he prays his prayer of repentance, David says this. He says, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And David's greatest desire was to dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of his life. And that ought to be the greatest desire of every single one of God's children. This side of the cross, we get to know and experience the presence of God in a far greater way than David ever did. And that's because the Lord of hosts no longer sits enthroned on the cherubim, but actually dwells inside us, sits enthroned on our hearts by his spirit. God's spirit was upon David, but God's spirit is actually in us as Christians. And though he will never leave us, nor forsake us. He promises us that. We can and we do experience the presence of God's Spirit in our lives to varying degrees. In the New Testament, we're told it's possible to, to quench the Spirit, to resist the Spirit. We do that when we sin, when we deliberately ignore or resist the work of the Spirit in our hearts as He convicts us of sin and calls us to obedience to God's Word. So for us... Part of what it means to desire the presence of God is to fight against sin, to fight for holiness, to, to labor to listen to the leading of the Spirit as He convicts us of our sin, as He guides us into the truths of God's Word and, and calls us to obedience. The author of Hebrews calls us to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we show that we desire God's presence by doing just that, striving for holiness. Another way that we show that we desire the presence of God is by gathering with God's people. The Lord is present by His Spirit in each and every Christian, but the New Testament tells us that He is uniquely present, as Jesse prayed earlier, when His people gather together. And Jesus put it like this in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So Jesus is uniquely present with his people when they gather together in his name. Right? And friends, that's exactly what we are doing right now. Right? Every time we gather as local churches, we come together to experience the presence of God in a unique way. We, we catch a glimpse of his presence in one another. Right? As we, we see the holiness of one another, we see something of the holiness of God. As we see the, the love that we show one another. We see something of the love of God. As we see the grace and forgiveness that we show one another, we see the grace and forgiveness of God. And so if we desire to be in the presence of the Lord, we should desire to gather with his people. Desiring to gather with God's people is a significant part of what it means to actually desire God himself. Also, if we desire the presence of the Lord, we should long for heaven. 
for the day when we're going to see God face to face to experience the fullness of joy in his presence forever. We don't want to let our hearts grow content with this world, with lesser things. No matter how good we have it, the, the bent of our heart should always be to long for the full presence of God when we'll see him face to face and live with him forever in heaven. So that's the first lesson. God's people desire God's presence. The second lesson is this, that God's people are to fear God. The God who dwells in us is the same God that struck down Uzzah. Right? In the scripture reading that we, we had this morning, we finished that reading by saying our God is a consuming fire. And, and that means that we need to constantly be marked by a right fear of God, mindful of the fact that he's holy, mindful of the fact that he hates sin. And that means, as the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 10.26, that we cannot go on sinning deliberately as Christians. We can't toy with sin. Even as those with clean, clean hands and pure hearts by the blood of Christ, we're to strive to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts day by day. We, we don't live in the fear of God's judgment, but we're still called to fear the Lord. And if we fear the Lord, we're going to flee from sin. So I'm going to encourage you this morning to ask yourself, does your attitude towards sin evidence a fear of the holy God? Or do you... Play with sin? Are you comfortable with sin in your life? God's people are to fear God. And then third and finally, God's people ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. God's people ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. But the good news of the gospel is that the God of the universe, the Lord of hosts, has made it possible for sinners like you and me to dwell in his presence forever. If the presence of the ark in Jerusalem led David to dance and sing before the Lord with all of his might and led all the people of God to shout and to sing and to blow trumpets, friends, how much more joyful ought you and I to be knowing every single day that God is with us and that one day we're going to be with him forever? The Christian life is hard. I don't want to deny that reality. The path into God's presence is going to be filled with sorrow and suffering. Jesus tells us that. And yet, God is present with us all along the way. Promises to be with us, to never leave us, to never forsake us. And that means, as Christians, we can be like Paul put it. We can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So I just want to encourage you this morning... To rejoice, no matter what's going on in your life, to rejoice in the gift of God's presence. No matter what comes your way in the coming days, no matter how the world despises you, no matter what hardships you face, God is with you if you're a Christian, and he will be forever. And as David tells us in Psalm 1611, in God's presence there is fullness, fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So my prayer is that each of us would desire the presence of God more and more each day. That we would fear him and that we would be marked by incredible joy. With that, let me pray.